Section 49 of Ulysses. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Karen. Ulysses by James Joyce. Part 3. The Nostos. Episode 16. Eumaeus. Part 4. Their conversation, accordingly, became general, and all agreed that that was a fact. You could grow any mortal thing in Irish soil, he stated, and there was that Colonel Everard down there in Navin growing tobacco. Where would you find anywhere the like of Irish bacon? But a day of reckoning, he stated, crescendo with no uncertain voice, thoroughly monopolizing all the conversation was in store for mighty England, despite her power of pelf, on account of her crimes. There would be a fall, and the greatest fall in history. The Germans and the Japs were going to have their little look-in, he affirmed. The Boers were the beginning of the end. Brumagem England was toppling already, and her downfall would be Ireland, her Achilles' heel. Which he explained to them about the vulnerable point of Achilles, the Greek hero a point his auditors at once seized, as he completely gripped their attention by showing the tendon referred to on his boot. His advice to every Irishman was, Stay in the land of your birth, and work for Ireland, and live for Ireland. Ireland, Parnell said, could not spare a single one of her sons. Silence all round marked the termination of his finale. The impervious navigator heard these lurid tidings, undismayed. "'Take a bit of doing, boss,' retaliated that rough diamond, palpably a bit peeved in response to the foregoing truism. To which cold douche referring to downfall and so on, the keeper concurred, but nevertheless held to his main view. "'Who's the best troops in the army?' the grizzled old veteran irately interrogated. "'And the best jumpers and racers? And the best admirals and generals we've got? Tell me that. "'The Irish for choice,' retorted the cabby like Campbell, facial blemishes apart. "'That's right,' the old tarpaulin corroborated. "'The Irish Catholic peasant. He's the backbone of our empire. You know Jem Mullins?' While allowing him his individual opinions as every man, the keeper added he cared nothing for any empire, ours or his, and considered no Irishman worthy of his salt that served it. Then they began to have a few irascible words, when it waxed hotter, both, needless to say, appealing to the listeners, who followed the passage of arms with interest, so long as they didn't indulge in recriminations and come to blows. From inside information extending over a series of years, Mr. Bloom was rather inclined to pooh-pooh the suggestion, as a grievous balderdash, for, pending the consummation devoutly to be or not to be wished for, he was fully cognizant of the fact that their neighbors across the channel, unless they were much bigger fools than he took them for, rather concealed their strength than the opposite. It was quite in a par with the chaotic idea in certain quarters that in a hundred million years the coal seam of the sister island would be played out, and if as time went on that turned out to be how the cat jumped, all he could personally say on the matter was that as a host of contingencies equally relevant to the issue, might occur ere then, it was highly advisable in the interim to try to make the most of both countries, even though poles apart. 
Another little interesting point. The amours of whores and chummies, to put it in common parlance, reminded him Irish soldiers had as often fought for England as against her. More so, in fact. And now why? So the scene between the pair of them, the licensee of the place, rumoured to be or have been Fitzharris, the famous Invincible, and the other, obviously bogus, reminded him forcibly as being on all fours with the confidence trick. Supposing, that is, it was prearranged as a looker-on, a student of the human soul of anything, the others seeing least of the game. And as for the lessee or keeper, who probably wasn't the other person at all, he, B, couldn't help feeling, and most properly, it was better to give people like that the go-by, unless you are a blithering idiot altogether, and refuse to have nothing to do with them as a golden rule, in private life, and their felon setting. There always being the off chance of a Danny man coming forward and turning Queen's evidence, or King's now, like Dennis or Peter Carey, an idea he utterly repudiated. Quite apart from that, he disliked those careers of wrongdoing and crime on principle. Yet, though such criminal propensities had never been an inmate of his bosom in any shape or form, he certainly did feel, and no denying it, while inwardly remaining what he was, a certain kind of admiration for a man who had actually brandished a knife, cold steel, with the courage of his political convictions, though personally he would never be a party to any such thing. Off the same bat as those love vendettas of the South. Have her, or swing for her. When the husband frequently, after some words passed between the two, concerning her relations with the other lucky mortal, he, having had the pair watched, inflicted fatal injuries on his adored one, as a result of an alternative postnuptial liaison, by plunging his knife into her, just until it struck him that Fitz, nicknamed Skin the Goat, merely drove the car for the actual perpetrators of the outrage, and so was not, if he was reliably informed, actually party to the ambush, which in point of fact was the plea some legal luminary saved his skin on. In any case, that was very ancient history by now. And as for our friend, the pseudo-skin, the etc., he had transparently outlived his welcome. He ought to have either died naturally or on the scaffold high. Like actresses, always farewell positively last performance, then come up smiling again. Generous to a fault, of course, temperamental, no economizing or any idea of the sort, always snapping at the bone for the shadow. So similarly, he had a very shrewd suspicion that Mr. Johnny Lever got rid of some LSD in the course of his perambulations round the docks, in the congenial atmosphere of the old Ireland tavern, come back to Erin, and so on. Then, as for the other, he had heard not so long before the same identical lingo as he told Stephen, how he simply but effectually silenced the offender. He took umbrage at something or other, that much injured but on the whole even-tempered person, declared. I let slip. He called me a Jew, and in a heated of fashion, offensively. So I, without deviating from plain facts in the least, told him his God, I mean Christ, was a Jew too, and all his family, like me, though in reality I am not. That was one for him. A soft answer turns away wrath. He hadn't a word to say for himself, as everyone saw. Am I not right? 
He turned a long, your wrong gaze on Stephen, of timorous dark pride, of the soft impeachment, with a glance also of entreaty, for he seemed to glean in a kind of a way that it wasn't all, exactly. Exquibus, Stephen mumbled, in a non-committal accent, their two or four eyes conversing. Christos or Bloom his name is, or after all any other, secundum carnum. Of course, Mr. B. proceeded to stipulate, you must look at both sides of the question. It is hard to lay down any hard and fast rules as to right and wrong, but room for improvement all round there certainly is. Though every country, they say, our own distrustful included, has the government it deserves. But, with a little good will all around, it's all very fine to boast of mutual superiority. But what about mutual equality? I resent violence and intolerance in any shape or form. It never reaches anything or stops anything. A revolution must come on the due installment plan. It's a patent absurdity in the face of it to hate people because they live around the corner and speak another vernacular, in the next house, so to speak. Memorable bloody bridge battle in seven minutes' war, Stephen assented between Skinner's Alley and Ormond Market. Yes, Mr. Bloom thoroughly agreed, entirely endorsing the remark. That was overwhelmingly right, and the whole world was full of that sort of thing. You just took the words out of my mouth, he said. A hocus-pocus of conflicting evidence that candidly, you couldn't remotely. All those wretched quarrels, in his humble opinion, stirring up bad blood from some bump of combativeness or gland of some kind, erroneously supposed to be about a punctilio of honor and a flag, were very largely a question of the money, question which was at the back of everything, greed and jealousy, people never knowing when to stop. They accuse, remarked he audibly. He turned away from the others, who probably, and spoke nearer to, so as the others, in case they. Jews, he softly imparted in an aside to Stephen's ear, are accused of ruining. Not a vestige of truth in it, I can safely say. History, would you be surprised to learn, proves up to the hilt. Spain decayed when the Inquisition hounded the Jews out, and England prospered when Cromwell, an uncommonly able ruffian, who in other respects has much to answer for, imported them. Why? Because they are imbued with a proper spirit. They are practical and are proved to be so. I don't want to indulge in any because you know the standard works on this subject, and then orthodox as you are. But in the economic, not touching religion domain, the priest spells poverty. Spain again you saw in the war, compared with the go-ahead America. Turks. It's in the dogma. Because, if they didn't believe they'd go straight to heaven when they die, they'd try to live better. At least, so I think. That's the juggle in which the P.P.'s raise the wind on false pretenses. I'm, he resumed with dramatic force, as good an Irishman as that rude person I told you about at the outset. And I want to see everyone, concluded he, all creeds and classes, pro rata having a comfortable, tidy-sized income, in no niggard fashion either something in the neighborhood of three hundred pounds per annum. That's the vital issue at stake, and it's feasible, and would be provocative of friendlier intercourse between man and man. At least that's my idea, for what it's worth. 
I call that patriotism. Ubi patria, as we learned a smattering of in our classical days in alma mater, vita bene. Where you can live well, the sense is, if you work. Over his untastable apology for a cup of coffee, listening to this synopsis of things in general, Stephen stared at nothing in particular. He could hear, of course, all kinds of words changing color, like those crabs about ringsend in the morning, burrowing quickly into all colors of different sorts of the same sand, where they had a home somewhere beneath, or seemed to. Then he looked up and saw the eyes that said or didn't say the words, the voice he heard said, if you work. Count me out, he managed to remark, meaning work. The eyes were surprised at this observation, because, as he, the person who owned them pro tem, observed, or rather his voice speaking did, all must work, have to, together. I mean, of course, the other hastened to affirm, work in the widest possible sense. Also literary labor, not merely for the kudos of the thing. Writing for the newspapers, which is the readiest channel nowadays, that's work, too, important work. After all, from the little I know of you, after all the money expended on your education, you're entitled to recoup yourself and command your price. You have every bit as much right to live by your pen in pursuit of your philosophy as a peasant has. What? You both belong to Ireland, the brain and the brawn. Each is equally important. You suspect, Stephen retorted with a sort of a half-laugh, that I may be important because I belong to the Faubourg St. Patrice, called Ireland for short? I would go a step farther, Mr. Bloom insinuated. But I suspect, Stephen interrupted, that Ireland must be important because it belongs to me. What belongs? queried Mr. Bloom, bending, fancying he was perhaps under some misapprehension. Excuse me. Unfortunately, I didn't catch the latter portion. What was it you... Stephen, patently cross-tempered, repeated, and shoved aside his mug of coffee, or whatever you like to call it, none too politely adding, 1170. We can't change the country. Let us change the subject. At this pertinent suggestion, Mr. Bloom, to change the subject, looked down, but in a quandary, as he couldn't tell exactly what construction to put on belongs to which sounded rather a far cry. The rebuke of some kind was clearer than the other part. Needless to say, the fumes of his recent orgy spoke then with some asperity, in a curious, bitter way, foreign to his sober state. Probably the home life to which Mr. B. attached the utmost importance had not been all that was needful, or he hadn't been familiarized with the right sort of people. With a touch of fear for the young man beside him, whom he furtively scrutinized with an air of some consternation, remembering he had just come back from Paris, the eyes more especially reminding him forcibly of father and sister, failing to throw much light on the subject. However, he brought to mind instances of cultured fellows that promised so brilliantly, nipped in the bud of premature decay, and nobody to blame but themselves. For instance, there was a case of O'Callaghan, for one, the half-crazy fattest, respectably connected, though of inadequate means, with his mad vagaries, among whose other gay doings when Rato, and making himself a nuisance to everybody all round, he was in the habit of ostentatiously sporting in public a suit of brown paper, a fact. And then the usual denouement, 
after the fun had gone on fast and furious, he got 1190, landed into hot water, and had to be spirited away by a few friends, after a strong hint to a blind horse from John Mallon of Lower Castle Yard, so as not to be made amenable under Section 2 of the Criminal Law Amendment Act. Certain names of those subpoenaed, being handed in but not divulged, for reasons which will occur to anyone with a pick of brains. Briefly, putting two and two together, 616, which he pointedly turned a deaf ear to, Antonio and so forth, jockeys and aesthetes, and the tattoo which was all the go in the seventies or thereabouts, even in the House of Lords, because early in life the occupant of the throne, then heir apparent, the other members of the upper ten, and other high personages, simply following in the footsteps of the head of the state. He reflected about the errors of notorieties and crowned heads running counter to morality, such as the Cornwall case, a number of years before under their veneer, in a way scarcely intended by nature, a thing good. Mrs. Grundy, as the law stands, was terribly down on, though not for the reason they thought they were probably, whatever it was except women chiefly, who were always fiddling more or less at one another, it being largely a matter of dress, and all the rest of it. Ladies who like distinctive underclothing should, and every well-tailored man must, trying to make the gap wider between them by innuendo, and give more of a general fillip to acts of impropriety between the two. She unbuttoned his, and then he untied her, mind the pin, whereas savages in the cannibal islands say, at ninety degrees in the shade, not carrying a continental. However, reverting to the original, there were, on the other hand, others, who had forced their way to the top from the lowest rung, by the aid of their bootstraps. Sheer force of natural genius, that, with brains, sir, for which, and further reasons, he felt it was his interest and duty even to wait on and profit by the unlooked-for occasion, though why he could not exactly tell, being, as it was already, several shillings to the bad, having, in fact, let himself in for it. Still, to cultivate the acquaintance of someone of no uncommon calibre, who could provide food for reflection, would simply repay any small. Intellectual stimulation, as such, was, he felt, from time to time, a first-rate tonic for the mind, added to which was the coincidence of meeting, discussion, dance, row, old salt of the here-today-and-gone tomorrow type, night loafers, the whole galaxy of events all went to make up a miniature cameo of the world we live in, especially as the lies of the submerged tenth, viz. coal-miners, divers, scavengers, etc., were very much under the microscope lately. To improve the shining hour, he wondered whether he might meet with anything approaching the same luck as Mr. Philip Beaufoy. If taken down in writing, suppose he were to pen something out of the common groove, as he fully intended doing, at the rate of one guinea per column. My experiences, let us say, in a cabman's shelter. The pink edition extra sporting of the telegraph, telegraphic lie, lay, as luck would have it, beside his elbow. And as he was just puzzling again, far from satisfied, over a country belonging to him, and the preceding Rebus, the vessel came from Bridgewater, and the postcard was addressed, A. Boudin, find the captain's age. His eyes went aimlessly over the respective captions, which came under his special province, the all-embracing give-us-this-day, our daily press. First he got a bit of a start, 
but it turned out to be only something about somebody named H. Du Bois, agent for typewriters or something like that. Great battle, Tokyo. Love-making in Irish. Two hundred pounds damages. Gordon Bennett. Emigration swindle. Letter from His Grace, William. Ascot meeting. The Gold Cup. Victory of outsider, throwaway recalls Derby of 92, when Captain Marshall's dark horse, Sir Hugo, captured the blue ribbon at long odds. New York disaster, thousand lives lost. Foot and mouth. Funeral of the late Mr. Patrick Dignam. End of section 49. Recorded by Karen.